Uh, for the first time ever, I was talking to somebody that was visiting Ottawa and they just had such a bad experience in the Byward market that they don't want to come back. And that's tragic, really, because the Byward market was and will be someday again, one of the you know most appealing things uh, about Ottawa as a city and, and can be really something special that helps our, our downtown thrive. And that's just not what it is today. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest, Kevin McMahon, who is the president at Park River Properties here in Ottawa. Actually, very honored and excited to have Kevin on the podcast today. Uh, Kevin, I appreciate you taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing very well. And yourself? I'm doing great. Doing great. Excited for the conversation today. Likewise, I appreciate uh, inviting me on. That's great. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I grew up in a small town just west of Ottawa uh, called Arnprior and uh, moved to Ottawa 21 years ago and now live here with my wife and two kids. Uh, in second year university, I, I decided to get my real estate license and, and try selling condos at the time. Uh, it didn't take very long for me to realize I did not have the sales skills to, uh, uh, to make it in that world because everything is a very emotional purchase. And I, I kind of like the, the dollars and cents and the uh, the research and analysis piece. So after three or four years there, I moved on to uh, commercial real estate brokerage and, and worked on selling some development sites. Uh, so I used a lot of the data that I had from the uh, residential side to support values for selling land development sites. And then I met uh, uh, from there, I was there about three and a half years as well, moved on to go and work with a developer uh, at the time, uh, building a project in Westboro, a mixed use development uh, with uh, Colonnade Bridgeport, which gave me a, a, my first kind of insight into the development world. Uh, while I was there, I, I was also doing some consulting on the condo market with various developers across Ottawa. And I'd built a research platform uh, that had an annual and, and quarterly subscription. So I got to work with all kinds of great developers and, and through my time at uh, Colonnade Bridgeport, the market switched from condos to apartments. And so when I was finishing up with that, that project, I decided to go out and focus exclusively on that marketing and research business uh, and had that for, uh, again, about three years. Uh, at that point, I met my now partner, Pierre uh, Boulet, who was building on the, uh, the Gatineau side for a number of years. And we decided to start investing in some properties together. And, and after a few investments, we realized uh, we needed to, to build a team to execute on these developments. So that's kind of how we got started in the development space. We picked the perfect time to start a development company just before a global pandemic. Really interesting few years uh, going through the development cycle, uh, mostly from acquisition through to planning and, uh, and construction. Uh, unfortunately, we have not put as many shovels in the ground as we would have liked, but we're working, uh, uh, working hard to, uh, to get those under construction later this year and, and into early next year. Well, that sounds great. Sounds like very extensive experience. Yeah, the, the short story is I've worn a lot of hats in the real estate space. Uh, and I, you know, like to try and uh, look at things from from others perspectives. And I, I think it's really helped, uh, uh, helped me and, and I have really enjoyed the meeting people in the industry like yourself. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful space to be in. There's lots of uh, uh, as many 
challenges as there are in the space. It's uh, it's a fun uh, fun thing to wake up and focus on every day. Yes, it is. And I know at Park River Properties, you do care about uh, affordability when it comes to rental housing. So how would you define affordable housing? Yeah, I think that's actually a really, it's one of the biggest issues that faces the industry. I think uh, there's a lot of broad-based definitions and, and assumptions that are made that aren't really helpful to solving the problem. I, I think it starts us looking down a path of trying to find the perfect solution. And the reality is there isn't going to be a solution where a market and affordable house are exactly the same thing um, because the costs uh, have to come from somewhere. And so there's there's uh, a whole lot of discussion around affordability and what affordable rents are. Uh, if we look at kind of using a fixed income approach, like the 30% of household income uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of financing programs and a lot of municipalities use, it, it doesn't really factor into size or housing suitability. So uh, the definition for CMHC MLI Select program at $1,535 a square foot it's not surprising that the industry really went and focused on smaller units to deliver uh, deliver that housing product at those rates, which is, is a good thing overall to get housing built, but it's not really addressing the core issue. And, and I think from our perspective, it, it's housing affordability is a component of life affordability. And I think what we need to be focused on is how people can live well. Uh, and that matters where you're located in terms of access to grocery stores, employment, um, transit, all the things that make the 15-minute communities uh, exceptional places to live that don't require a vehicle. And if you simply look at that impact of having a vehicle versus not, in terms of life affordability, it's a material difference. But when you use a broad-based definition for affordable housing, it's not captured anywhere in that equation which makes it difficult to help solve uh, solve the problem for what affordable market rent is, which is another way that uh, municipalities and governments define uh, affordable housing. And if you look at that as a, as a I'll say a, a benchmark, the challenge with that is that we, we, lead, we lead to these definitions that are inclusive of all types of product across the city, regardless of age, quality, uh, or location. So you blend a value of a 50 year old building in Orleans with a brand new building in the Glebe, average it out and that becomes your, your um, average market rent, which in, in the research space isn't really a relevant piece. Um, uh, you know, If you look at that average, the average for Ottawa is $1,347 for a one bedroom. And I challenge you to go out and find a one-bedroom apartment for thirteen hundred dollars and forty-seven. Sorry, thirteen forty-seven. Uh, out of curiosity, last night I went on Zumper, which has both old and new stock. There were two hundred and forty-nine listings. Uh, I thought I found one below thirteen hundred and forty-seven dollars, but it was actually twelve hundred dollars for a private room, not not a full <laughs> unit. So there wasn't a single unit below $1,347. So to say that's the average market rent is just misleading. And again, it, it sets a false expectation that we're gonna be able to deliver a lot of units at or below that rate. Um, so not only is that you know market value way off, it's, it's really prohibitive to find those solutions that we need to bring really affordable supply to the market. That's very good. I love your points there. And 
Why do you think some people view affordable housing as a negative thing or in a negative light? I think the biggest problem isn't so much the association with income necessarily. I, I think it's the condition of the property that is the biggest issue. And, and you see that across the city where older stock hits a certain point and it's really difficult uh, to justify continuing to put money into those buildings when you can look at, at redeveloping those sites. And that's happened um, obviously, Heron Gate was probably the, the most um, uh, news, uh, newsworthy uh, scenario where that happened. And obviously, I think there were a lot of lessons learned out of that process. But it also happened with uh, auto community housing. So a, a city funded entity basically did the exact same thing uh, with a similar product in uh, at Gladstone Village or sorry, Rochester Heights. So I think um, I think it has to do with ensuring that older stock is maintained, but also we put in policies in place that that avoid situations where redevelopments um, displace people without uh, without any way for those individuals and families to stay in the neighborhoods that they might have been a part of for a really long time. So I think that has a lot to do with people's uh, nervousness when it comes to an affordable housing project in their neighborhood. They want to make sure that it's it's managed properly and there's not going to be some of the social challenges that come with different types of community housing that exists across the city, especially the higher, uh, higher needs or, or higher risk segments of the market where um, there's a lot of issues uh, from a social perspective. You mentioned uh, displacing communities, right? And that has to do with gentrification. So can affordable housing projects be designed to avoid or reduce the negative effects of gentrification? I actually think that um, affordable housing is the critical piece to uh, bringing together those 15 minute communities, because when you have uh, you have new development in an area that takes away older stock, the challenge isn't just where do those people go and how do they stay in the neighborhood, but they actually might not only have to move, but they might have to uh, also get a new job. Because if they if they walk to work in the neighborhood that they maybe have been in for a long period of time and then they have to move outside of that neighborhood, it might not be feasible for them uh, to, to get to work in a reasonable way. So not only you're disrupting their home life, but you could potentially be, be disrupting their work-life balance. So uh, I think that is uh, a really important piece that we need to solve as a city. And I think it comes down to finding a way to incentivize truly affordable housing that, uh, that again, people can afford from a, life, uh, a lifestyle perspective. You want to make sure that when um, when we're looking at housing affordability, that somebody has a path for long-term success. It's not just, you know, a suitable apartment uh, that's at the same rate. It might not be in the same location uh, as what they, they need it to be to, to continue living well. You made a point there. So communities or people that are living in affordable houses with regards to their place of work and how far it is from where they live, you think that's a huge priority for them? They consider that as a higher priority? Well, I, I think when you look at the cost of owning a vehicle, uh, I, I would lobby to say that any new affordable housing project should have zero parking. If, if they're in transit-oriented neighborhoods, uh, how, uh, parking costs a fortune to build. Uh, on our projects, I would say it ranges from about fifty to eighty thousand dollars parking stall. So there's upfront capital that's required to do that. It takes longer to build because you have to go down before you go up. Uh, and it's uh, from a lifestyle perspective, I think there's a long enough waiting list. I think there's thirteen thousand people on the affordable housing waiting list. There's enough people that would be able to, if they could move into affordable housing in a neighborhood uh, that has employment opportunities, 
I think it it just makes sense. I think um, if you ignore the fact that you could live right in a neighborhood uh, like the Glebe where you can walk to everything or downtown uh, and you don't need a vehicle and you only look at rent, well, the problem there is $1,400 a month in Canada and $1,400 a month downtown. If you have to spend $700 a month on a car or $500 a month on a car, it's it's a very different impact on your the remaining income that you have to spend on food and clothing and kids and all that stuff. So um, I think we should be looking at that as a model. I know auto community housing is, is looking at some innovative solutions to address that while also making sure that residents have the convenience of access to transit. I think, um, not, not sorry, not just transit, but transportation as a whole. So car sharing programs, that sort of thing, I think are going to become vital uh, to providing those that access to, to make living without a car in Ottawa uh, a reality because we're not like some cities where 365 days a year, you can go out, outside and easily walk around to go get your groceries. There's the reality of climate and, uh, uh, and also kids hockey isn't the easiest thing to bring, uh, bring your kids around to play hockey three or four times a week on the bus, right? Like that's, there's practical challenges that um, we need to find solutions for. Wow. Zero parking sounds brutal. Well, it exists elsewhere. I think you're going to see it more and more here. But I think in any market rate properties that we're developing, if we're looking to maximize the the rent we can get above grade, zero parking wouldn't be a reality that we could offer because whether it's a condo or apartment, there's a certain uh, price point that people expect or want parking. Uh, having a car in Ottawa is is something that I think a lot of people value when you look at comparisons to living downtown Toronto. If you can live in Ottawa with a car cheaper than what you can live downtown Toronto, I think quality of life is something uh, that's that's really important. Your your 15 minute drive to Gatineau Park uh, to go hiking through uh, you know what is a beautiful park. You can get to cottages easily. All that sort of stuff is is certainly something that uh, I appreciate uh, about Ottawa. And I think a lot of people do, but at the end of the day, when you, you boil it down to solving affordable housing, it's really costly to build. And it, it uh, Im- impedes our ability to bring mass number of units to the market. Wow. So zero parking exists in some countries. Yeah, I, I think there's a number of projects in Toronto. Uh, you look at New York. I, I don't think there's many projects that have a, a parking in New York. And when they do, it's three or $400,000 for a parking spot. You know, obviously, I'm not suggesting Ottawa is New York or Toronto, and we've got a long way to go in in bringing um, confidence in our public transit system back to be able to rely on it to to do what you have to do on a day to day basis. So I think that's that's critical that we get that right and and get it back. Uh, uh, I'll say moving in the right direction. <laughs> that's right, moving in the right direction, indeed. Or any direction, I guess, at this point. <laughs> any direction, yeah. Uh, could you give some examples of policies and initiatives that address affordable housing? There's obviously the most recent one that comes to mind. We've got uh, the GST uh, component uh, that's been uh, been waived for um, for rental housing, which I think is is a really great uh, step in the right direction. I don't think it's the necessarily the um, it's going to tip every project to, to making sense today, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. But I, I think there's a number of those types of programs. Uh, if you look at the other, obviously the provincial component of HST is a really uh, important piece that we can uh, we can align on that. Uh, then there's things like development 
charge waivers that have existed uh, under previous um, councils where around uh, trans-oriented development uh, sites, there was no development charges payable. I think that's something that we could look at uh, to encourage uh, less, um, more development around those transit stations that rely on the systems and get people using those systems the way that they were uh, designed to be to be used. I think other things that exist uh, to encourage more development is things like uh, property tax credits. In Gatineau, they recently, I don't know if it still exists right now, but they had a uh, 75 to 90% property tax rebate for 10, 10 years if you were building housing on the island of Hull that met a certain standard of, uh, of sustainability. I think uh, if you look at Gatineau today and the number of projects that are under construction there, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, and I think that, that type of program has had a considerable impact on bringing new housing forward and, and trying to uh, bring new housing forward over the long term will help affordability. I don't think anything that we've done to date is necessarily gonna move the needle to, to the private sector being able to deliver mass amounts of truly affordable housing. Uh, I think we've got, we've got to figure out how we can collaborate with the city and with the province and with the federal government to, uh, to make that a reality. And I don't think it's impossible. I just think it's uh, uh, getting all of the stakeholders around the table and, and having an open discussion that's not, um, not adversarial, which seems to be the case, uh, whether it's communities or municipalities with the development community. It, it needs, we need to work together and, and try to solve the same, uh, the same issues. Now that you mention it, there's definitely more uh, multifamily development projects on the Gatineau side than in Ottawa, it seems. Yeah, I think if you just look at uh, development charge credits as, as a potential solution. So and you, you take a studio unit that you're trying to deliver at eleven or twelve hundred dollars a month. That's that's really hard to do. Anybody that's out looking at a studio unit in a new apartment will say that's just not a reality. And, and rents are more expensive than that uh, now. And, and that's simply because the cost to construct is so high. Development charges on a studio unit are about twenty thousand uh, dollars per unit, which on a three hundred and fifty square foot unit is sixty dollars a square foot. That's more than it's roughly the same as what you pay in concrete uh, and and formwork to get the building actually built. So all of that is is a cost that uh, when you look at it and you're, you're that's irrespective if it's a three hundred square foot unit or a 900 square foot one bedroom unit. So on a 900 square foot one bedroom unit it makes up a lot less per square foot, right? Uh, and that doesn't factor in some of the other elements where you pay development charges up front. So you're incurring interest through the development period which can last four to five years till you get your uh, refinancing um, in place. So that has uh, an additional probably six or $7,000 in interest to, uh, cost plus the opportunity cost of putting the capital out that makes up the other side of, of the, the equity side of the equation, you're probably another, you probably have to make another five or $6,000 uh, uh, during that period. So realistically, the DCs have an impact of, of $32,000 uh, per, per unit for a one bedroom. And that's just, uh, that's a lot per square foot. You're talking about 80, something like $80 a square foot, which, uh, is significant. Are there any innovative financing solutions that can help address housing affordability? I think we're early stages of finding uh, the right solutions. I know obviously uh, the, the MLI Select program, if you look at the number of applicants, you 
probably have a number of applications uh, out there that uh, that went in before the, the change in policy. Um, it, it's incredible how many applications went in. I think a lot of people just looked at, at the change in insurance rates and it's a very material difference. So it's hard to decipher how many of those projects um, are going to put a shovel in the ground right away uh, from the ones that are just trying to make sure they're part of uh, of the previous um, insurance premium rates. So uh, I think we've got to find a solution that can deliver on not only just housing units, but truly affordable units that um, that work for both the private sector as well as municipalities and, and ultimately, more importantly, the residents that, uh, that are in need of those types of units. So uh, I, I think we're, we're trying to find a perfect solution for affordable housing where rents are sub a thousand dollars and uh and everybody has a home the reality is that's just not going to happen so from our perspective the approach that we've taken is is let's let's solve the problem for the next stage of uh of community housing to allow somebody to move from community housing into private sector housing and if we can do that that'll free up uh housing for um for the more at-risk uh, populations that might not be able to work uh, and need those subsidies uh, to have a roof over their head. So I think the policies we we have around the financing programs, I think some of the programs are really innovative, but I, I can tell you the onslaught of applications that went in, uh, we've had an application in since May and uh, uh, it just got picked up by an underwriter, I think last week. So. Um, there are others that have been in before that that still haven't been picked up. That's a long time to wait for an application on your financing. And a lot of things have changed in, in that time period. So uh, it's difficult to navigate those types of financing policies when you don't know when it's going to happen or, or at the end of the day, similar to what the changes made with the MLI Select program, what it's actually going to end up being. So I, I think some stability around those programs, long-term stability, would be critical in, in the messaging from the federal government. I think you, you need to give people um, a program that they can plan on over the two, three or four years of, of entitlements work that goes into a site. So they know that when they're ready to put a shovel in the ground, that financing programming will exist and, and the numbers still make sense. Do you think it's possible for the government to provide some type of certainty with their planning? Uh, I, I, I have my doubts, uh, but I, I mean, I, I don't mind what they did with the, the, the GST to give us a long enough window uh, where they, they've made it from, from now until 2030 to get a shovel in the ground. And then you have another five years to finish your projects. I think, I think that gives us a window where there's some certainty around getting units developed. The challenge is I don't think in that period we're going to be able to build enough units to catch up to supply. And that's more... Uh, not necessarily a, a will component, but it's uh, it's actually the people that are going to build these projects just don't exist. Whether it's trades or, or general contractors, uh, you don't have to look too far back to see when we were at peak capacity, uh, albeit through a um, through a pandemic, so not exactly normal normal business. But uh, there was a point in time where you couldn't get general contractors, you couldn't get trades, uh, despite having a project ready to go. And I don't think we're going to be able to solve that problem inside of that window to really ramp up output of housing. Uh, I think efficiency in construction is something that we need to solve uh, and, and improve on because uh, it takes a long time to build a building. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's, that's part of the challenge that we need to uh, find a solution for. 
So talking about the pandemic, what has been the impact of the pandemic on affordable housing and homelessness? Yeah, I don't think you have to take a walk too far around our city to see what the impact has been uh, on homelessness and some of the other social challenges that it's created. Uh, I think a lot of those uh, those social um, issues arise from having no security about where you're living, right? Uh, that is a uh, a very acute problem right now. I, I don't know exactly how many homeless people we have on the uh, on the streets right now, but one is too many, uh, and that's a problem that I think we we can address if we can just come to the table with constructive solutions as opposed to just talking about how we have it as an issue and somebody needs to solve it. Uh, I think there needs to be a you know a task force put together to to solve these issues because it's really impacting our city as a whole uh, for the first time ever, uh, I was talking to somebody that was visiting Ottawa, and they just had such a bad experience in the Byward market uh, that they don't want to come back. And that's uh, that's tragic, really, because the Byward market uh, was and, and will be someday again, kind of a uh, one of the, the, you know, most appealing things uh, about Ottawa as a city and, and can be really something special that uh, that helps our, our downtown thrive. And that's just not what it is today. And, and I think a lot of that uh, stems from obviously the the mental health issues around the pandemic. There was uh, lack of access to to resources. The housing shortage is, is certainly not helping. And so I think with the rise in costs uh, for construction, I know our projects look very different uh, from a budget perspective now than they did uh, when we were looking at the projects in the early stages of planning. Uh, that has caused a lot of projects not to go ahead. But it's also led to rents having to grow at a rate uh, that has a shadow impact on older inventory. So when construction costs go up, new developers are faced with, uh, with basically either underwriting additional rent growth or not building the project. And when they underwrite additional rent growth and achieve that, then all of the older buildings around that project, when they're seeing one bedrooms rent out for $2,200 a month, if, if I own a one bedroom unit across the street in an older building, I know that I'm going to be a discount to that new, uh, that new product. But if their rents go up 10 or 20%, my rents can go up, you know, the same to stay still as a value to somebody that's going to look at that new product and say, well, I can live in an older building across the street for a hundred, 200, $300 less, um, and, and maybe get a larger unit at the same time. And so then you get every time units turn over, rent growth is pretty significant. And uh, I think that's a, uh, that's a, a challenge. Um, I also don't think that some of the policies around uh, annual rental increases are, are necessarily consistent with the realities of uh, increased costs for uh, property owners. So limiting the, having, a, having an index that's supposed to go up at CPI when you just put it at zero for one year and then cap it at two and a half percent for a couple of years in a row when obviously we know inflation was much higher than that uh, does not go a long way in creating kind of that uh, that comfort level around managing operating expenses for these buildings. So are you for or against rental control? That's a very difficult question to answer. I think there are certainly benefits to some degree, but I don't think any cities that have really enforced rent control. I don't know of anywhere that you can look back and say that has objectively made things more affordable. I think what we need to do is really um, come to the table with solutions to deliver more affordable housing because 
as much as we want to deliver more supply of, of housing in general. And that's certainly the policy that we're seeing provincially, uh, federally and, and locally. Um, if all we're doing is putting out new supply of expensive product, uh, that's not going to address the problem. So I, I think it's more important that we focus on uh, providing truly affordable housing than to rent control existing stock. Um, or or if, if you put rent control on new product uh, in a market where in a year your construction costs can go up 15 to 20%, as we've seen in the last couple of years, that's a huge challenge from a risk perspective to uh, uh, to come to the table with with a, a proposal to build new supplies. So I think there are certainly major risks. I think where we're at now with rent control, uh, I think the staying in uh, in your home uh, with a specific rental increase uh, for older stock, I, I believe it's 2018 and, and before, uh, is is reasonable and and I think that's good. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it would be difficult to continue to build new product if, if that's on the table for uh, new construction. That's very true. That's very true. And what ways can technology and design contribute to more affordable housing options? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of great technology out there. I think the industry as a whole has not been the fastest to adopt technology and, and for many, uh, many good reasons. I think um, sites, Right now, I think there's a lot of tools out there to help try and manage construction sites better, but they just don't seem to uh, be implemented the way that the, uh, um, the service provider intends it. So we use a program called Procore, um, and you know I'm excited to see some of the elements of, of that system that can influence how efficient and safe uh, a construction site can operate. I think we've got a long way to go to catch up to uh, how the efficiency of, of how we used to build buildings. Now, I know, obviously, labor laws have, have come a long way since uh, uh, since the you know early 19, 1900s uh, and certainly don't want to revert back to that. But uh, this summer I was I was up at uh, the Shadow Montebello and learned that it's a, I think it's a 70 or 80,000 square foot building. It was built in four months and they had 3,500 construction workers on it. Um, for us to build that size of building now, you're probably looking at 18 to 24 months um, with a, a fraction of the amount of workers. Now, obviously, today we don't have 3,500 workers that you can put on one site. Um, but I always find it interesting when you you look at at the sites that are under construction and the amount of people coming and going to those sites. It seems like technology might be able to play a role if we can add workforce, uh, add people to the workforce. That technology might be able to play a role in better coordinating. Uh, sites to have more more people on site to build buildings faster. And if we can do that, then the risk level goes down, interest costs go down, uh, exposure to cost increases go down. There's a whole bunch of great things that uh, um, that can work for you to, to help build more affordable housing. So I think, you know, I'm excited to see where that uh, kind of workforce management goes over the next five to 10 years. Uh, we've looked at a bunch of different uh modular technology for building. And I think that's got great promise from, from our perspective. I think the challenge is often you are taking a project that you've already designed to go and speak with a, you know, whether it's cross laminated timber or whether it's uh, some other type of panelized system. And so it's starting from scratch and trying to, to make that solution work for your plans. Uh, I think if we did it the other way and started looking at uh, designing the most efficient ways 
to build modular construction and, and actually bring the technology down and find sites that can build uh, that product more efficiently and, and more on a mass scale perspective, I think we could really see some significant uh, decreases in costs. Whereas right now, most of the uh, most of the sales pitch from entities that are working on modular housing is around time savings on site, which is a real, uh, an absolutely uh, uh, important component of it. But in many cases, there haven't been enough kind of test runs to really bank on that being the case. And in some cases, a simple supply chain disruption could put you, you know, not only uh, at the same time as, as traditional construction, but you might end up having to wait longer if something in the factory goes down or, or um, other types of supply chain uh, constraints that you don't necessarily have with traditional construction, which I think is why you haven't seen kind of a widespread adoption, particularly with some of the larger developers that are, are well suited to do that. Seems like a part of the solution is construction efficiency, our workforce management. Yeah, I also think you know material choices uh, are something that I, I hope to see some innovation uh, in types of materials that we're using. If you think of drywall as an example, uh, it is a really inefficient product to install uh, in a house, right? You've got to put the boards up, then you have to tape it, then you have to mud it, then you have to sand it. You have to mud it and sand it and then paint it. And then every time a tenant turns over, you got to fix it and paint it again. And so if there was a more resilient wall paneling that provided the same type of fire separation uh, and that you could put up similar to how you'd put up, um, you know, another uh, like a like a plywood that just goes up and you're done, then uh, I think that could have a pretty good impact on speeding up uh, construction. I think the same can be said about plumbing systems and electrical systems especially now that we're, we're using a lot more efficient um, uh, lighting that's low voltage, that you don't necessarily need to hit the same standards that you did when you, uh, you know, 30 years ago. So I think some evolution around the building code and, and making it easier for trades to get in to whether it's uh, plumbing or electrical and finding new technologies and materials that help facilitate a faster build are, are something that uh, both things that I, I think will have a profound impact going forward. Well, that's great, uh, Kevin. This, is, this has been a great conversation. So one last question for you. Uh, how can affordable housing projects integrate sustainability in design and construction process? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting one because, um, I mean, I kind of want to say that uh, it, it's going to be maybe a little bit controversial, but I think any dollar that's allocated for affordable housing uh, should be put towards providing houses uh, affordably for people. So all of our projects, we are looking at geothermal, we're looking at doing all kinds of sustainability for market rate housing. The priority to me for our city is to get people uh, uh, from living on the streets to in, a, in housing that they can you know, feel secure with. Um, I think you know, the general stats, I think, are between 10 and 20% is the uh, passive house tax basically. So to take a standard building and get it to uh, a net zero costs somewhere between 10 and 20%. Uh, to me, when I look at that and say, instead of doing passive house for every five, five houses we build, we get a, a, you know, an extra one, right? And so when you put that in context of a 300 unit building, that's potentially 60 more homes that we could be providing for people to live in. And I think that has to take priority. Now, I say that uh, also with, um, with an opinion that, that that component of sustainability is critical and that's a problem we need to address. But I think as a, as a broader society, 
it, it should be part of that discussion in how we bring sustainability in. And I know there's all kinds of great programs that provide uh, better financing terms for more sustainable buildings. There's a lot of grant programs out there that exist, particularly for nonprofit housing. And so obviously, you know, I, I support those programs, uh, but I think from purely uh, a funding perspective, we don't have enough funds being allocated to affordable housing in the city of Ottawa. Uh, and I think if we we really just took the approach of, of building more units at the rates that we need them to be at uh, and use those dollars to stretch as far as we can to do that, I think that should be the priority today. Uh, and I think the sustainability component is obviously uh, as critical, uh, but I think it should be funded through through different avenues. That's very good. Well, Kevin, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time. I, I loved our conversation. I have to go back and listen to some of the great points. Well, I, I appreciate having me and uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing the discussion around uh, affordable housing and seeing where it goes uh, from here. I think we're, we're really excited about the promise of what some of these new policies can do to, uh, to deliver affordable housing. Now, that sounds great. That sounds great. You have a great uh, rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Mateo.